Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. Most of what we think we understand about selling is constructed atop a foundation of assumptions that has crumbled. This is in the introduction to the best-selling sales book, essentially, by Dan Pink, called To Sell is Human. And really what he's covering in this book, and what he covers in that, that's part of the introduction of the book, what he's really talking about there is that when it comes to sales, what most people think sales is, is actually not what sales is. This book is broken down into three parts. Part one is called rebirth of a salesman and part two is called how to be as in how to be a salesman and part three is what to do so what i have decided to do with this particular book is to break it into three separate podcasts because i think there's enough in it for uh, for digestion by taking one part at a time essentially and so obviously we're going to start with part one rebirth of a salesman the book opens with a story about a fuller brush salesman. Now, if you don't know what a fuller brush is or a fuller brush salesman, I didn't know either. But supposedly in America, it is a big deal, or at least it was a big deal. And he opens the book telling a story about a guy called Norman Hall. And he is in his 70s when the book is written. So this was um, maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago. And a fuller brush salesman was somebody who would go door to door selling brushes and cloths and um, you know cleaning products or and, and that kind of thing. And Norman Hall was the last one. And there was a point in time where a fuller brush salesman was ubiquitous across America. And because sales has changed so much over time and people buy things online, he's literally the last one in America as he begins this book. And it's an interesting approach he takes to explaining sales. And one of the things he talks about later on in the book is information parity. The idea that if you go to buy something, whether it's a brand new car, whether it's going to buy a used car or um, something in the shop, you know, doing your weekly shopping, the chances are there's information parity. And the, the example he gives in the book, and I'm kind of jumping ahead now, a bit of where I was planning on starting, but one of the things he talks about in the book is that if you're going to go and buy a used car back in the 70s and the 80s and even in the 90s you just had to take the salesman's word for it that this was a good car and it it had never been in a crash it was had never been rebuilt all of those things that you know who knows you just kind of take their word on it whereas these days if you go to buy a used car all you need is the, the registration number of the car and you can look it up on any number of websites to find out all the information about that car so by the time you go in to look at an actual car there's information parity there's there's no inequality in the information the chances are that the person going in to buy the car has more information than the person who's selling the car and that's a kind of a key component about the the first part of this book the rebirth of a salesman and he makes the point that not everybody is in sales, but really everybody is in sales. His point is that to sell is human. He says that if you want to get somebody to, to exchange their money for your product or your service, that's obviously sales. But if you're in a presentation or if you're in a meeting and you're trying to move somebody from their current viewpoint to your viewpoint or a new viewpoint, that's sales. If you want your kids to clean their room, that's sales. You have to sell it to them. So 
To Sell as Human is a fantastic title for the book. And it begins, like I said, with part one, Rebirth of a Salesman. And chapter one is called Rollin' Sales Now. And begins that chapter with the story about Norman Hall and being the, the last Fuller Brush salesman. And then he goes on to talk about what he calls non-sales selling. So he himself, he said, he came up with the idea for this book uh, while he was procrastinating, right? He decided to look back over the last two weeks at this particular point in his life to see what was he up to the last two weeks. And um, he found that, not surprisingly, a lot of what he was doing was sending emails and networking with people and that kind of thing. He's an author, right? That's ultimately what he does. He, he is an author about, about, um, about these kinds of things. But he says in the book that I discovered that I spent a sizable portion of his time selling in a broader sense, persuading, influencing, convincing others. And he said, I'm not special. He said, physicians sell patients on a remedy. Lawyers sell juries on a verdict. Teachers sell students on the value of paying attention in class. Entrepreneurs woo founders or funders. Writers sweet talk producers. Coaches cajole players. And whatever the profession, we deliver presentations to fellow employees and to make pitches to new clients. And we try to convince the boss to loosen up a few dollars from the budget or human resources department and uh, a few more vacation aids. And it goes on and on talking about how we're all in sales all the time. And he went on then and he asked, I think it was over 9,000 people, what do you do at work? And as it turned out, over 40% of them said they worked in non-sale selling, right? As in persuading, influencing, and convincing. But there was another main finding that emerged from asking 9,000 people, what do you do at work? He said that people consider this aspect of their work crucial to their professional success, even in excess of the considerable amount of time they devote to it. And then in chapter two, he goes on to talk about how business has kind of changed or how he considers considers it to be that people are in the, the moving business and he says there's three keys to understanding this this workplace transformation as he puts it one entrepreneurship two elasticity and three edmed right which is uh, education in 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 medicine essentially is what he calls it so in chapter two that he starts off talking about how entrepreneurship has changed sales essentially if you're an entrepreneur you're all things to all people you're the you're the the tea boy or the tea girl you're the ceo you're the founder you're the hr department you're everything and he says that what's happening in, in especially in america at the moment it's estimated that 30 percent of american workers now work on their own and that by 2015, obviously it's quite a while ago now, the number of non-traditional workers worldwide, freelancers, contractors, consultants and the like, will reach 1.3 billion. That's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people who are working for themselves in what we now call the gig economy, right? People who are working on contract for places. They need to get good at selling themselves. So those people are in sales as well. But then it goes on to talk about the second part in chapter two, is elasticity. And he talks about a well-known company called Atlassian, um, which if you haven't heard of Atlassian, it's, they sell enterprise software. It's, it's large, complex packages um, that, you know, they do project management and track progress and uh, foster collaboration among employees, all that kind of thing. But what's really interesting is the year this book was written, in 2012, Atlassian collected $100 million in sales without one single salesperson or more specifically, so nobody that they would consider to be a salesperson. The CEO says, we have no salespeople. Because in a weird way, 
everyone is a salesperson, which is kind of a contradiction, but that's kind of the point in this whole book, that we're all in sales. Sales isn't about just having a, a, a magic list of words that you say to somebody. Actually, I'm jumping ahead now again, but later on in the book, he talks about um, asking people, what's the first thing you think of when you think of salespeople? And in the book, he puts it into a word cloud. And he asked, I don't know, a few thousand people all around the world, so from all different walks of life, when you think of a salesperson, what's the first word that comes to mind? So this word cloud, if you're not familiar with word clouds, it's essentially the bigger the word is in this bunch of words, the more that was the answer. The biggest word, obviously, was the number one answer. That's the idea. It's a visual representation of what people think of this particular thing. So he gives a top 25, and they're pretty much all negative words. But the biggest word that people think of when it comes to salespeople is pushy. And that's really interesting when you think about people who are entrepreneurs or people who are working in companies that don't want to consider themselves salespeople because they're probably thinking along those kinds of lines. They're probably thinking that salespeople are pushy or that salespeople are going to trick me into giving my money to them for something that I don't really want. And to kind of get away from the book for a second, I, I have a, a theory or I suppose a thought about what about how sales actually works, where how good sales works compared to how people think it works. Think about this, this is the way I always consider it, is that people hate being sold to, but they love buying things. Think about the last thing that you purchased that you really, really wanted, whether it was a bottle of perfume or a, a computer game, a brand new coat, car, whatever, right, pint, <laughs> whatever it was, the last thing that you bought that you really, really wanted, my guess is that you didn't think twice about handing over the money or thinking this is a rip-off or this is um, not worth it. Because you wanted it, the, the price was just the price. That's just what it's going to cost. And that's a really interesting, I suppose, psychological approach to understanding sales. When it's something that you really, really want, the price is just the price. It doesn't matter. But if somebody is trying to sell you something, and we have all spotted those people, that person who, who rings your doorbell, does it, you're sitting down with your dinner, and starts talking to you about your broadband provider, or starts talking to you about, uh, you know, electricity provider, or whatever it is, they're there purely to sell to you. You haven't gone looking for them. They've they've interrupted you, and now you now you're all of your defenses come up, and you do everything you can to try and get rid of them, right? Unless you happen to be in the market for broadband or whatever it is. But generally, when those people call to your door, or when somebody approaches you, <laughs> do you ever get that person who approaches you in a shop and just hovers and says, hey, is everything okay? Can I help you with anything at all? They're just trying to sell you something and it just makes you fairly uncomfortable, again, unless you're looking for help. Generally, those people, though, are trying to sell something to you. And the, po the whole point in this book is that that isn't what sales is. It's, it's not what sales ever should have been. And it's definitely not what sales is now with information parity, where everybody has the same information or the, uh, the same access to the same information. Ultimately, what he's talking about in this book is making sure that you are, if you are in sales, which you are, if you work on reception in, a, in an organization, you're in sales. You're the first person that a, per, a potential client meets is the, is the receptionist. If you are um, a dishwasher in a restaurant, that's all part of sales as well. This is his whole point. Sales should be about providing solutions. Now, it's uh, it's it's interesting. I think I, I 
I'm not 100% sure if it's actually in this book or in a different book, but I'm pretty sure it's this book where he talks about a uh, Mentos, you know, the, the chewy mints, right, that you buy in the shop. Their salespeople are trained to go into, you know, the mom and pop store, as they call them in America, the, the corner shop, and to be a consultant to the store owner. They're not there to try and force mentals onto them, like, and that's what it, that's the difference between buying, buying something that you want and being sold to. You see, when the the mentals salesperson goes in, he'll look at the entire display and position himself as the expert and tell the shopkeeper, "You need to move those ones over here. Buy some more Smarties for over here. Kit Kats for over there. Uh, you're actually okay for mentals. You've got loads there. They're displayed quite well." And what that does is it builds trust. And ultimately what the Mentos guy is trying to do is, is to is to build rapport. Is to make sure that he's actually providing a solution. So that when the guy comes in, with the next time he sees this guy coming into his, into his shop or into his store, his defences are not going up. He welcomes them because he knows this guy isn't going to try and sell something to him. And then when the time is right, he goes, you know what, actually you do need some Mentos fare. It's about the longer game. Right, that, I hope that makes sense. But it, we'll come back to that. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is in this book. I probably should have checked that first. But it's a it's an interesting approach to sales, and that's what he's talking about in this book. To sell as human, we're all in sales. We're all about providing solutions, regardless of the business that you're working in. Anyway, back to Atlassian. They collected at hundred million dollars without a single salesperson. The way they do it is through elasticity, right? Which is the second part of chapter two in this book. It's that. People don't necessarily specialize in one particular area that they should be able to cover lots of different areas, essentially. Or as he describes it, the new breadth of skills demanded by established companies. You're way more valuable to a company, I think, if you can if you can do lots of different things. You might be able to be a project manager or not even to be able to write code or sling code, as they say. Um, but to at least understand it, to be able to have an intelligent conversation. The more intelligent conversations you're able to have across an organization, the more, the more valuable you're going to be, ultimately. Then he goes on to talk about another company, an even bigger company who are based in uh, Silicon Valley in, in California, called Palantir. Now... They don't have salespeople either, but what they do have is what they call forward deployed engineers. And this is genius. This is this is a good one. What they're doing is rather than having traditional salespeople on the phone or giving people, believe it or not, if you've never worked in sales, sometimes they're given scripts. If the person on the phone says this, you say this. If they say that, you say that. And you're literally following like a flow diagram of things to say they know how to get past all of your defenses, basically. But what he's talking about here is, is not those kinds of people. He calls them forward deployed engineers, or what the company calls forward deployed engineers. They send their actual software engineers out to companies to figure out how can we help you. So... As I'm sure you know, you get onto the internet and you're looking at a new piece of software for your business or for your department or uh, you're looking at something like Spotify or Netflix. What's the first thing you do, right? If, you, if you're pretty sure you want it, but you're not 100% sure, get the free trial, right? The freemium model is what they call it. And the freemium uh, version generally has some bits of the main bit and they try and, they try and uh, tempt you all the way along. So it could, sometimes it's a seven-day free trial. Sometimes it is... Um, a free trial for as long as you like but you've only got limited access to some of the features right that kind of thing so this is what this this company uh, 
Palantir do. They they give out a, a free version of their software and then they send out their forward deployed engineers. These are people who help to write the software, who know the, the actual content or the the platform backwards, right? And they're able to answer the customer's questions. So there's no sleazy sales tactics where they're saying, you know, hurry, 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 the sale ends soon. There's none of that nonsense. They know that the product speaks for itself. If you want some help, this is how you would do that. Oh no, you'd actually need to pay for that feature. Yeah, you can do that, but you would need to pay for that feature. That's not sales. That's just that's just how it is. This is you can you can do this, this, and this. If you want to do the next five things, you're going to have to pay for them. So forward deployed engineers who are, if you've ever met an engineer, they're absolutely not salespeople. Right? I would say, um, although having said that, that's a contradiction because I am both an engineer and a salesperson. Um, so who knows if that's true or not? But for the for the most part, engineers, especially coders, they like to sit in front of the computer with their uh, EDM, right? That's electronic dance music. I like to have that on and uh, sling code, as they say. So when they're forced to go out into the big bad world and actually talk to their customers, it's brilliant for the customers because they get to speak to someone who's an actual expert in the piece of software that they're trying to understand. And it's great for the engineer because they get real real time feedback on what they've actually built, which is hugely, hugely important. Um, to a company so a very very intelligent approach by that company Palantir to, to to have those what they call forward deployed engineers and the third thing he talks about is EdMed or the educational services and healthcare which in 2012 when the book was written was the largest growing job sector in the US and these jobs were all about moving people all about those I guess those softer skills of bedside manner for for the medical industry or the health healthcare services and education as well is about moving people or kind of understanding uh, learning styles and abilities and tailoring your teaching to that which is um, ultimately what you're looking to do so in that particular section of the the book he talks about he tells a few different stories basically about people who um, a couple that he knows actually who are one is a, a nurse i think and one is a teacher and how they have to employ essentially sales to to move people along from a particular view, viewpoint that they have to a, a more useful viewpoint and i'll read out of the book here it says uh, healthcare and education both revolve around non-sale selling the ability to influence to persuade and to change behavior while striking a balance between what others want and what you can provide them which is a really interesting way of of considering that job sector that it is sales even though it's education and uh, medical care or health services and he ends this particular chapter by asking some a, a, a few questions and these four questions are for you to decide if you're actually in the sales business yourself and he's uh, i'll give you the, i'll give you the four questions question one do you earn your living trying to convince others to purchase goods or services fair enough that's pretty much sales if you answered no go to question two Question two is, do you work for yourself or run your own operation, even on the side? Some people yes, some people no. Obviously, there's sales involved in that. Question three then, though. Does your work require elastic skills? The ability to cross boundaries and functions, to work outside your specialty, and to do a variety of things different throughout the day, which is most people. Because one of the things he says in this chapter as well is that the the manufacturing jobs, those labor-intensive jobs, we all know what's happening with those jobs. They're all getting automated out of existence. So people are moving more into those elastic skills. And the fourth question then, do you work in education or healthcare? Then you're in sales. So 
it's it's an interesting approach especially question three there having those elastic skills if you do presentations if you have to get a point across in a meeting that's sales that's all that's that's ultimately what it is it's not about being pushy it's not about having a magic script that's going to get people to part with their money it's about more than that it's about it's about moving people that's that's what he's saying in this book as well it's it's you're in the moving business essentially it is what sales is the third chapter and the the final bit i'll, I'll finish on for this uh, particular podcast is a little bit of latin right for you caveat emptor to caveat vendator so caveat emptor we all, yeah, I was going to say, we all know what that means because we all speak Latin. We don't. It means uh, buyer beware. And caveat venditor means seller beware. And this is what I was talking about when he, he has the, the word cloud there now for how people consider salespeople. They consider them to be pushy and difficult and annoying and uh, dishonest even is in there, manipulative. All of those words, smarmy, essential, important. But the main ones are pushy, yuck, uh, <laughs> difficult, annoying, all those kinds of things. So in this third chapter, he talks about uh, a joke, uh, a Joe, a guy called Joe Girard, who is basically con- he considers himself to be one of the best salespeople of all time. Um, in one year, he sold one thousand four hundred and twenty-five cars in Detroit, and these weren't fleet sales. This was like what he calls in the book belly to belly. Uh, so one person at a time. So imagine that's like is that several cars every day uh, for the entire year. Uh, quite an achievement. And then he wrote a book, obviously enough, uh, to how to sell anything to anybody. And now he starts off quite well. So this is the, the author, Dan Pink, is talking about this guy, Joe Gerard, who he, he has an interesting approach to sales that, you know, recommendations is ultimately he's talking about he calls it gerard's rule of 250 that each of us have uh, 250 people in our lives that we know well enough to invite to a wedding or a funeral you'll also tell those people about the guy you bought the car from i think it's called dunbar's number i think dunbar's number is about 120 or 150 essentially that's how many names or faces you can hold on to in in your um, network ties in nicely with their uh, tribe size back in the day as well right if you want to uh, look into the, the caveman tribes and all that kind of thing getting off the point but gerard's rule of 250 is that if he sells a car to to one of those 250 people that he knows well they'll tell their 250 people and they'll tell their 250 people and that's it basically that's how he did it but he kind of goes a bit off the rails then when he starts talking how he cold calls people so he'll just look this is back in the 70s he'd look up the phone book and uh find a random name uh, ask for the wrong person and uh he'd kind of manipulate the conversation and say okay well I'll, I'll give a call back when your husband is home that kind of thing and um, even though he knew he was onto the wrong person he just randomly picked a number in the first place and then try and get a call back and try and get a, a sale moving that way like it's i guess it's in it's it's one way to cold call it's um you know there's there's pluses and minuses to whether you know just picking up the phone and randomly trying to sell something to somebody over the phone is a good idea or not some people will tell you cold calling is essential some people tell you it's absolutely dead I guess it depends on your industry. But in the book, this guy, uh, Joe Gerard, there's no talking him out of this. He doesn't care about the internet because he's still around these days. He doesn't care about the internet, doesn't care about, um, you know, that the asymmetrical information is, doesn't exist anymore. He, he he still thinks his way is the only way to, to sell. And so then he he gets past this guy, uh, Joe Gerard, and, he, and, he, and he's, he tells a tale then of two Saturdays, essentially, where one saturday he goes to a used cars uh, lot and 
watches two guys from a from a, a company called SK Motors, where this is like the old school version selling cars. A person comes in and they they haggle over the price, and the guy takes the car for a test drive, and and off he goes. And they sell maybe I think it's three or four cars in a day. And the next Saturday, then he talks about going to a, another company a couple of miles away called Carmax, where you know everyone's wearing t-shirt and jeans kind of very uh, laid back but what's really interesting is that the the people in the first place right the old-fashioned place their commission was based on the more money they got off the car the more commission they got which is fairly standard but in the then the other place on the second saturday in carmax their commission makes up their entire salary but the commissions are not based on the price of the car the commissions are set so selling a budget car gets the same amount of commission as selling an expensive one. And the customer knows that. And because of that then, that removes the temptation for the salesperson to try and push something onto somebody that they might not necessarily want or need. That's the first thing. The second thing is that these people who work in CarMax, they know that the person coming in to buy a car is probably educated or may not be educated about the particular car they're looking for. So they sit them, either the, 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 the person working there sits on one side of the desk, the customer sits on the other side of the desk. But the key difference here is that the screen isn't facing the person working there, it's to the side. So that both the customer and the employee can look at the screen. So they'll go through it together. And this is the fundamental difference about the rebirth of a salesman. That it isn't about trying to hoodwink somebody or to hold to, to be the gatekeeper of the information. It's about providing a solution. It's about ensuring that somebody is getting is comfortable. Because remember what I said a few minutes ago that people love buying things, but they hate being sold to. So if you're if you're especially in this day and age where we're bombarded ever, more than ever with advertisements, if you're trying to force something onto somebody, they'll smell a rat way quicker these days than they would have back in the seventies, or even back in the seventies and the eighties. They wouldn't have had much choice but to just believe you. And that's what's key here about this this new approach to sales that the internet has given us is information parity. And what he's talking about in this book, To Sell as Human, we're all in sales. We're all in sales. You just have to realize that sales isn't about being pushy. It isn't about being smarmy or sleazy. It's not about having a, a list of magic words. It's about providing solutions. It's about, it's, it's about making sure that people understand that we may have the solution for you, we may not. Like Atlassian or uh, Palantir, Palantir uh, where they have their, their forward deployed engineers. It isn't necessarily about trying to get somebody to give you their money. It's about providing a solution. And that's true whether you're face-to-face -face with customers, whether you are in a, a business meeting or de delivering a presentation, uh, working for yourself. You have to be genuinely curious about what the person is looking for. If they've come talking to you or they're willing to take a meeting with you, you have to make sure that you're aware of of what they're looking for. And that's where you get into active listening and um, asking probing questions and in your own head thinking, I, I might not have the solution for this person. This might not be what they're looking for, but I might be able to do it. I might be able to find something for them. Just like the guy who's selling the chewy mints into the, the corner shop. He's not trying to He's not trying to force his sale on people. He's just trying to provide a solution. Hopefully his product is part of their solution, but it might not be this time, but it might be next time.
So until next time, where we talk about part two of this book, how to actually go and put this all into practice. I shall talk to you very soon. Thanks, everyone.